The following episode of the Planet 30 podcast contains adult themes and adult language. This interview should be consumed by mature audiences only. Joy Buchanan is opinionated, to say the least. In her estimation, she is a beautiful blend of her calm-natured Anguillian father and her expressive Jamaican mother. Joy's childhood journey saw her living in both islands for a time and eventually landing in the UK. The UK brought with it a mixture of experiences and adventures. She has many tales about adjusting to a new culture and learning to embrace her new home. Joy attended Imperial University, one of the UK's top institutions. By trade, she is a construction manager. She is an executive for one of the top companies in the world. And like her childhood, her work takes her all over the globe. Though there is not an abundance of women in her industry, her work ethic and skill prove time and time again that women are just as capable in the sector as any man. Joy, however, is so much more than a construction manager. She is a life coach, helping persons through difficult times and issues. In her own words, she does this all through a Christian lens. Though some view her approach as bold, Joy says that she is simply being honest. Even people of faith, she says, have to be honest with themselves and one another in order to progress. As if that was not enough, Joy is an entrepreneur. She has started a business manufacturing products on the African continent for worldwide distribution. Bold, feisty, maybe quirky, but always honest and true to herself. This is the story, thus far, of Joy Buchanan. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. She is a construction professional a life coach, and she's probably lived in more countries than you have visited. Joy Buchanan, welcome to Planet 30. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. I am too. (laughs) (laughs) So Joy, wonderful to connect with you after a number of years. (laughs) We won't won't (laughs) give out our ages. (laughs) (laughs) You are half Jamaican. Half Anguillian. Mm-hmm. Now, how you know, coming from two different islands, albeit both Caribbean islands, how did that sort of um, mix of cultures inform you as a person? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, and I notice people always say interesting when they don't know quite how to answer, and that's what I just did. The truth <laughs> is, Jamaica is a very vibrant, kind of boisterous society. People are very expressive. And Anguilla, as a smaller island, people are somehow a lot calmer. So I have both of these sides of me, I think. My very Jamaican, very expressive, very dramatic, hand-moving personality type. And then I also have my Anguillan side that's sometimes just a little more calm, just like, yeah, you know, more relaxed. So I think it's, it's both of them. 
that have really influenced my life. And even when I blog, sometimes I really quote my Jamaican grandmother, who was, again, very dramatic, versus my Anguillan grandmother, who didn't speak much, but when she spoke, there was power. Mm. Very interesting. So you, you, you were in Jamaica until age yes. seven. Yes. Had some time in Anguilla a few years mm-hmm. well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to the UK. Tell me, what was the, was there any culture shock that those first couple of months or years in, in the UK? So many things. So my dad's godmother is a lady um, in Anguilla. And um, she, she had told me, when you go to England, Joy, it's going to be so sophisticated. People will drink tea properly. They will sip, you know, she, she even taught me how to drink tea. She would say, you have to sip your tea and then pat your mouth and then have two sentences in between. So I expected England to be something out of an Enid Blyton novel. In fact, when I went to school for the first time, school finished at 10 to 4, and I assumed that we're going to have afternoon tea afterwards, right? But no, at the end of the school day, people go home. There's no formal tea, you know? And so I was really shocked that England actually has dirty places. There are people that are rude, people spit on the streets, you know? It's not as perfect as we are told it is coming from a Caribbean context. So that was a really big shock. How disappointing. Indeed. (laughs) So, I mean, specifically in terms of the schooling, in terms of, you know, now you're in a society where you're a minority. How did that play out into your psyche? Yeah. Well, I think for most black people who have migrated from a majority black environment into one where you're a minority, you suddenly realize that you are black. And of course, I hadn't really noticed my blackness before. And so that was really shocking. I remember going to a store with two of my white friends. And, you know, I went into the store and it was was more like a boutique. And the lady said, how can I help you? And she was really helpful and the security guard didn't bother us. I bought something that day. The next day, I wanted to get the other dress. So I went back, this time without my white friends, but dressed in pretty much the same way. The security guard, you know, literally followed me around. The woman, she didn't say, how can I help you in a very nice way? She said, how can I help you? And she literally looked like she was watching my every move. And I was so surprised because it was the same woman and the same security guard. And I was like, okay, this this is what it is to be black or to be a minority, which I'd never really experienced before in my life from a race point of view. So that was interesting. And also, I think um, I was very lucky. So I went to an all-girls school. In fact, the oldest all-girls school in the West Midlands of the UK. And so even though I was a minority, there was it was a fee-paying school and the teachers were really good. So I didn't get that prejudice where people thought, because I'm black, I can't achieve. But I have heard a lot of people went through that. So I'm really lucky that I didn't experience that. So what was the dream, even as a teenager? You know, what, what did young Joy want to become when she got older? Joy wanted to make money. Joy wanted to make money, of course. When I was choosing my university degrees, I looked for who, which universities actually, which graduates made the most money in terms of location, in terms of degrees. And so I realized that people who went to top five universities made more money. People who went to London universities tended to make more money. And engineers tended to make more money. So I applied to do chemical engineering at Imperial College London because it was really about how can I be in a position to make money? 
As I grew older and I started interacting with more people, I began to really love influencing people and helping them to meet their full potential, which is why I became a life coach. But yeah, honestly, when I was young, it wasn't about impacting or saving the world. It was about money. And Imperial College is no, I mean, (laughs) you want to talk about the best of the best in the UK. Imperial College is on the list. Oh, yes. So very interesting. What was the experience like at Imperial? Imperial, so (laughs) I will tell you this, because we're friends between you, me, and your viewers. Imperial had a seven to three ratio of men to women. So I literally thought I would be in heaven. I was like, so I'm going to go to university, learn, and be surrounded by fine men. Oh, my Lord. Hallelujah. I got there, and there were 70% men, but they weren't all, you know, gorgeous, hunky, engineering, like, muscular types. You know, so it was a little disappointing in that respect. I won't lie. But I actually did meet at Imperial. I met the person who was going to become my husband. We divorced later on, but I did meet, you know, some really amazing people who I'm still friends with today. Awesome. 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 So you leave Imperial. You are super joy at this time. You have a degree in chemical engineering and you go into construction of all things. Tell us about your uh, job history within the sector. So how I got into construction, again, is is kind of amusing because I got into construction because I wanted to travel. And, you know, when you're in construction, you can travel anywhere to build anything. So I was at a bus stop one day and I met this lady. So her name was Kadeen. And we ended up talking every single day for like about a year. She worked for this company called Bechtel, and she had actually moved from the U.S. to the U.K. to work for this company. And I thought, that's super cool. I'd love to do something like that. So I applied to Bechtel into their graduate scheme, which uh, allowed me to do rotations. So I actually applied to three different positions, and I got three different rejection letters from Bechtel. And then they called me for an interview. So, of course, I turn up. I don't tell them they've actually rejected me. And, you know, I get the job. So it was pretty cool. And uh, I started off being an expediter. Wait, wait, now, back, expediter. Back, up, back up just a second. Yeah? You got a rejection letter from them. Yes, but I got you, three rejection letters. But you showed up for the job anyway? Well, I get a call going, come for an interview. So I turn up for the interview. Oh, okay. Yeah, I turn up for the interview. You know, I don't point out that, you know, you actually rejected my application. So you probably shouldn't be calling me for an interview. But hey, I just... I just turned up, you know, didn't, didn't tell them that, you know, you probably made a mistake calling me for an interview because you'd already rejected me. And um, I did an interview, then I got called back for the assessment center and I got the job and I stayed with Bechtel for 12 years. Wow. And yeah. th- and you uh, during that time, well, before, uh, before that, let me ask you this. What was it like being... A female and a male, because <laughs> seemingly you you put yourself or you have been in situations where uh, are heavily male dominated. First imperial, now you're in construction, and so what was that like as a female in the construction industry, particularly you know being a black female in the construction industry in Europe? You know, it was intriguing. I don't want to say interesting. It was intriguing. The truth about it is. The construction business is like family. So once you're in and they consider you family, it actually doesn't matter about your race or your gender. Mm. But it takes you a while to become part of the in crowd. So, for example, I was in Angola for four years. 
Not to be and, confused and with Anguilla. Angola. Angola is in Africa, everybody. It's in the <laughs> south of Africa. You know, when you tell Jamaicans that you're going to Anguilla, they actually thought you're going to Angola. Somebody told me before I left Jamaica, oh, I hear there's going to be civil wars. You take care of yourself. And I was like, Anguilla is the most peaceful place. on. It was at the time when we moved. It's like the most peaceful place on earth. We didn't even lock our doors back then. You know, okay. hardly... Hardly, hardly Angola, but I was in Angola for four years and I was working on an LNG plant and the team was so close. We once sat in a meeting where nobody had to speak. There was a crisis and something happened and literally everyone went, right, so we need to book a plane to do this. Yes, we need to get the engineering design. And literally everyone went, yes, 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 yes. And that was it because we were such a close team and I was a part of the team. So I think once you're in, you're in, but it takes you a longer time. And what I would tell women definitely is don't focus on your femininity. Focus on being the best you possible. I think the mistake some women make in construction is they try to be masculine. We don't require you to be masculine. We require you to be you. So bring your masculine energy when required and bring your feminine energy when required. But just bring yourself. And know the difference. (laughs) <laughs> that's it it's so it's so important so when i was younger in construction i did some things that probably were a bit outrageous so i would book a meeting for an hour the meeting would finish after 15 minutes and i'd stand by the door and say nobody's going anywhere you all have actions sit down and do them you were gonna be here for an hour but now you have 45 minutes you know which some people told me was rude and i said i don't care I know that you don't do your actions when you leave this meeting. So I've deliberately booked your time. And I'll stand by the door. I was like, nobody's moving. Sit. <laughs> and in particular, you know, you, you're a female, you're a woman who was in management. Yes. There, there, there must have been some pushback somewhere. Um, there was pushback from women also. I had a woman tell me that I am, I make it known that I'm female. And, you know, I I make excuses because I'm a woman. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, you would not come in to work when you're on your period. I was like, ma'am, some days when I'm on my period, I have a fever. I'm throwing up. It's not physically possible for me to come to work and be throwing up every two minutes. So I choose not to come in. That's not about me being a woman. That's because I'm ill. You know, but she said, oh, well, you just made it seem as if because you're a woman, people should do things for you. I was like, no, I think because I'm a professional and I'm a manager, when I ask for something to be done, I think it needs to get done. And I'm not going to take no for an answer, irrespective of my gender. Mm, Dropping the word. So you're you're with Bechtel and you're traveling to several countries other than Angola. Tell us some of the countries that you worked in. So I haven't lived in that many places, but I've lived in the U.S. and Canada. Um, That was super cool. To come into America, you know, which you've heard so much about, and I lived in Houston, Texas. Great, great city. uh, It's an amazing place. The food is lovely. I was with my then husband. Um, He was, we were expats in Houston. We lived walking distance from the Galleria. Oh, wow. Downtown. It was, well, actually it's uptown. Uptown, I'm sorry. Uptown, uptown. Um, You know, so it was, I got my own car for the first time. Um, It was a really lovely experience. The weather was amazing. We drove to San Antonio, did that, San Antonio, we did New Orleans. 
really lovely experience. Um, definitely. And I lived in Canada, which was also interesting because Canada is so family focused. Canada was the first time that I really understood division of labor in a marriage. My male colleague called me and he said, Joy, I'm not coming into work this morning because my child is sick. So I'm going to um, take the morning off and my wife is going to take the afternoon off. And I was like, huh, okay, that makes sense. They both work. But I was so used to women taking time off work and men coming to work as normal, right? Even though I was a woman. So that was a really interesting experience. I also met a guy called Kevin Rolston. He was the project director and his wife didn't work outside of the home. His two children were sick for, I think they had a virus or something. And he said, oh, guys, I'm not coming to work tomorrow because I need to take care of the kids. And so I said, oh, your wife is working. How cool is that? When did she start working? And he said, she doesn't work. She works inside the home. I was like, so why are you taking time off work? Because she's there, right? Why? I didn't understand the concept. And myself and the Brits and the Americans were like, we're very confused. But the Canadians were like, it makes perfect sense. She's tired. The kids have been ill. He needs to support her. And that's why he's taking the time off work. And for me, it was such a profound experience because I'd never seen anything like that, where the men seemed willing and companies seemed to facilitate this concept of men being equal partners. Incredible. It really, you know, and that's obviously a model that I like. And, you know, when hopefully if I get married again, you know, I really want a man who's a partner and to be in a company that facilitates that. So interesting. But do you know what actually the statistics show that companies that facilitate this kind of thing make more money? Because people, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. it's. I look at my job now. I work for a company that is so conscious about work-life balance. And because of that, like, I consider work so much fun. Like, sometimes I'm texting my colleagues and it's, you know, midnight my time and they're in the U.S. And they're like, why are you texting? I'm like, I just had a great idea. What do you guys think, you know? But I'm so excited about it, so energized that I have this freedom and flexibility to be creative that I literally sometimes work loads of hours. Mm. And so, so wait, uh, after Canada, you went to where? After, sorry, I should do the story chronologically. Okay, so Canada, so it was the U.S. and Canada. After Canada, I went to Angola, and I was in Soyo, Angola, and I was there for four, about four and a half years. So I love this story. I went to Canada, and somebody took a risk on me. And I highlight that because sometimes we got to take risk on our people. I went to Angola as a planner. So my job was to put together the plans to make sure we successfully complete this project, right? We use a tool called Primavera. I didn't know how to open Primavera. So I sit there for three days. Good. Uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know, you know. And then they asked me to put together a schedule. Now, when you pull a cable, you have to pull the wires, and then you have to put the wires into the sockets, right? So it's called terminations. So you have to pull the cable first, then connect the wires. We call it pull and term. The first schedule I did, I said that you could terminate the cables and connect them before you'd actually pull the cables. This is how bad I was at this. No. I didn't know what I was doing. And my boss looked at me and he said, you, you have no idea. I said, I told them I don't, but I said I'm willing to learn. And he decided that he was going to teach me. 
how to be a great planner. And he did. He would call me at five in the morning and say, why are you sleeping? I was like, because it's five in the morning, sir. He said, no, you need to get up, walk the sites, see what's going on. You need to know as much as anybody else. You need to be better than everybody else. And I was like, what? But he really mentored me in that space. He said, ask tough questions. Be that person that has knowledge. And yes, it's going to take longer. And he was Asian. And he said, you know, and by the way, you're a black woman. And I know you don't feel this has any influence on anything, but don't let it be an excuse for someone not to give you the job. Be better. Mm. And that experience literally, it, it was a course change in my career because I really stepped up my game at that stage. And it taught me something that I love building. So up until then, I'd been in offices. So I'd seen it on paper, but this is the first time I saw a building site. So I get there, and I think 10 days in, I did a plan for a fire water tank, okay? So what happens is you build this tank, and you have to connect the pipes to the tank so that the process fluid, or the water in this case, can actually be distributed amounts around the plants, okay? So you have this big pipe that you have to put on a crane, lift it up, and connect it. If you ever see somebody piping a tank, it is the most beautiful thing on earth. There's a crane driver, a, tra- a crane conductor, who tells the driver how to lift the pipe. Somebody's holding the different ends of it. The pipe has to go in in complete alignment, and then you put on the bolts, right? And I called my mom. I said, Mommy, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. We built it, right? And I realized that I fell in love with construction because I got the ability to see something being created, something that was on paper, and now it exists. And I was a part of that, and it was incredible. And I've been doing site construction ever since then. It's just like a bit of a love. I think I'm even nostalgic. So tell us about your time in the Middle East. Oh, I didn't work in the Middle East. I just visited the Middle East. Wait. So I was I was in Kazakhstan. Right. With Central Asia, but um, I visit. I was lucky enough to visit. I visited Abu Dhabi. I visited Dubai and Bahrain. Oh, wonderful! Bahrain is my favorite. Um, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, I find them to be very new and shiny, but Bahrain had a very rustic element. Um, so it was really super cool. I got to go to Bahrain for three days. Really loved it. Um, would like to go back. Definitely. But yeah, I didn't work in the Middle East. And I'm not sure, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity, but it's never been a desire to work in the Middle East. So you work, you now work for a behemoth of a company. It's so big, but it's obvious. Uh, (laughs) It's a secret, but yet it's obvious. Um, Tell What's your day to day like? So right now I'm the European manager of cost control for one of the biggest infrastructure um, developments of data centers. And it is incredible fun. I basically get to see where we're going to build our data centers and make sure that from a cost perspective that we're doing it right. And that's all about the data that we use, you know, on our applications and making sure that we get to use our applications to the fullest extent. And it's such a nice thing to be a part of that. 
it's it's incredible but actually that didn't answer your question that was just me telling you how much i love my job my day to day is i have a team of three people and they are incredibly bright and gifted and all i have to do as a manager i just have to help them be good at their job so when it comes to the cost control making sure the cash flows are correct when it comes to making sure we have the budgets when it comes to risk management, you know, um, risk management is something that a lot of companies don't get right. And making sure that, hey, we are capturing the risk early and we're mitigating them. I tell people like this, risk management is life management. So at the end of the day, when you're getting married, you know, you, you're doing risk management. You go, hey, there's a risk that I'm going to want to kill this person. Okay. There's a risk. There's there's an absolute risk. How can I mitigate that risk? Well, first of all, I can actually go, ooh, this is a threat to my sanity and my freedom. Killing people generally ends up in jail. So what are the things that I need to do to make sure I'm not going to be in a position where I want to kill this person? Fair enough. Can I accept that risk? Fair enough. If I can't treat the risk, what will I do? And that's basic risk management, right? You identify the risk, then you make an assessment of you know the risk what's the impact what's the probability and then you see what you can do to mitigate it or what you do to accept it mm-hmm. that's the same thing that we bring into risk management in construction there's a risk that brexit is going to mean we're going to struggle to get um laborers onto sites from the uk and the uk has some specialists that we really want on certain data center sites but how are we going to deal with that risk are we going to accept it are we going to train people outside of the UK to do these jobs so that we don't have this problem? What, what advice do you have for people, particularly females, who want to enter careers in STEM? Do it. Do, do, it, do it and understand. This is going to sound naughty. Do it and do you. Do it and do That's you. That's it. Do it and do you. Do it and, and I do think, you. Yeah. It, it comes back to a point I made earlier that the mistake I think a lot of us make, not just as women, but as black people and maybe as, um, you know, homosexuals or minorities generally, we try to conform. And it, it happened to me. I remember um, I worked for Bechtel for many years. And every time I started a new assignment, I always had a European hairstyle. Mm, straightening of the hair. Absolutely. And even when I wore braids, I made sure my braids were European looking. Mm-hmm. So I didn't I didn't have, you know, big old kinky twists and doo-doo plaits. No man. I used to wear I used to wear pearls and you know, suitable heels and knee length skirts and I used to wear pantyhose. I wouldn't show my bare legs, no 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 no. That's not that's not what I did. Because I wanted people to see the professional, not the person. But it's so important that people see the person because the person is where we shine. So I'm quirky, for example, at work. So I make my team, for example, I make them do affirmations. So once a month at a team meeting, I'll say, hey, before we start the meeting, I want to know one good thing about you. And I need you to hear it in your own voice. Tell me, tell me what you're good at. And they go, really? That's weird. I'm like, I know it's weird, but I believe it's important and I'm going to make you do that. And so they do it, right? Because that's me bringing myself. That's me bringing the person with the professional. Mm-hmm. 
And that I think as women, we, we have to do that and accept that, you know, people will question us. I've, I've heard people say stuff. Um, I was an expediter and someone called. There was a problem. Somebody called. And I pick up the phone and the guy was from Saudi Arabia. And he said, is this Mr. Joy's secretary? Can I please speak to Mr. Joy? Because he assumed we'd been emailing for at least four months. He assumed that I was a man. I couldn't possibly be a woman. But he called my direct dial, and it said direct dial. He assumed it must be my secretary. How is Mr. Joy a woman? Isn't that interesting? Incredible. So, was he... (laughs) Was he shocked when when it was revealed to him? Yes, of course he was, because, you know, I said, no, this is Joy, and it's not Mr. Joy, and I've told you this. He said... Oh, because you're trying to be, he was in Saudi. He said, I understand people are trying to be gender neutral. I said, no, I'm not trying to be gender neutral. I actually am a woman. And he was like, oh. And what I found interesting about this guy in particular, he had studied in the UK. And I was like, so, but you know that people can't do anything. But yeah, it was, that was, (laughs) I remember that. That happened many years ago. That's so interesting. Yeah. You have vast experience in construction and, and being a professional. And uh, like I mentioned, you are a manager at a behemoth of a company that shall remain <laughs> nameless. But through, through it all, and I'm assuming, and you can speak to this, I'm assuming that this comes from your very Caribbean background, mother from Jamaica, father from Anguilla. You are not only a Christian, but you are a preacher, did you grow up in the church? And uh... well, okay, let's clarify. I'm not a preacher. I have preached <laughs> at times, and because you know the office of pastor is an office in the church, and I don't hold the office of pastor, so I'm not an ordained minister. Okay, but I've had the privilege of uh, um, speaking to people. Um, I've had the privilege of preaching on a Sunday. And I've also had the privilege of traveling to deliver different programs um, that are part of Christianity. So what a great privilege. But I'm very much into practical Christianity. So when I was in Jamaica in 2019, we were talking about, um, was it 2019 or 2020? It was just before COVID. And I actually delivered the sessions on self-esteem, deportment, and also financial management. So it was called Your Worth. Because I'm a firm believer that Christians need to have the best financial management out there. I do not understand people who say that they're saved and they have bad spending habits. It's very clear for me in the Bible that God said have dominion over the earth, which means that you need to have control over your finances. Mm-hmm. But so my, my question actually which leads on to this. You know, why has your faith remained in God and Christianity? especially at a time when many are moving away from quote-unquote organized religion. What what makes joy remain there? I think it's because I'm not a believer in organized religion. Ah. I think organized religion, I think we should move away from organized religion. It's, it's evil. Organized religion is what justified slavery and apartheid and even the Holocaust. You know, Hitler said that the Jews persecuted Jesus and used it as a justification for the Holocaust. Hmm. So, so, is evil. so your stance on Christianity is what? My stance is that it needs to be a personal relationship with God. 
and it has to impact you. If your Christianity is not impacting others, it's not impacting you. So the question is, how is your Christianity affecting your life? And that's that's what I try, I try to ask myself, you know, um, is my Christianity making me a better person? And the answer for me is absolutely yes, because I, I feel the presence of God in my life. I feel sometimes um, there's a wisdom that I have, especially the days that I pray. So if I ever have a period in my life where, you know, I'm not praying as consistently, my work doesn't go as well because I'm not as in tune and I'm not bringing as much wisdom. If there's ever a time that I'm not tithing, my finances seem to be really messed up because if you're giving 10% of your income to the church, you're very conscious about the 90% and therefore I think you invest and you spend that 90% much more wisely. So for me, Christianity impacts my life in such a positive manner. I, I'm a better person. And I'll tell you the truth. So I, I like sex. Because of my Christian beliefs, I practice abstinence outside of marriage, okay? I didn't always, but I have done for the most part recently. Now, if it wasn't for Christianity, I would probably be a holy hope. Because a I would holy hope. Please explain that one. I literally would probably be having sex left, right, and center. But because I am not, you know, trying to have sex outside of marriage, therefore I'm not doing that, right? So Christianity also helps me in that space. Which leads me to my next question. You concentrate on relationships between sexuality and religion. Tell us about that. It's, so it's something, I don't know if I concentrate on it, but it's something I'm very well, passionate in, in about. Your, in your teachings. So, let's, let's, let's go back a little bit. The Bible says that we should flee from sexual immorality, which means that adultery is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, and fornication is a sin. Now, when we say what is a sin, a sin is something that's against the rules of a specific religion. Okay, so for example, you, you know, the, you know, you're going to get challenged on that one. No, but a sin is about religion. A crime is about laws, right? Right. So homosexuality, for example, should not be a crime because it should not be against the law of a nation. But a religion has the right to set its own rules. So different religions will have different sins. So a Muslim man married to four women is not a sin in his religion, but it is a sin in Christianity. Yes, yeah, so sins are about the religious discipline, you know? So You know, and, and that's an interesting differentiation. Not many people uh, sit, the t- sit down and uh, take the time to dissect that. Really? That's what we were taught. In, we were taught that in school. The difference between the law and the religion. Absolutely. I remember, I remember, I remember, and, I don't remember her name, but I remember what she looked like. She was a Caucasian lady, kind of like white, white hair, and she actually had a son who was disabled. And I remember us having this conversation, the difference between a crime and a sin. And it's just a side note, actually, because even though I, in Christian terms, homosexuality is a sin, something that really impacted me was I was in Costa Rica. And I heard I was on the eastern side of Costa Rica in Limon and I heard people with Jamaican accents now of course it's the side that is on the Caribbean Sea so I expect Caribbean sounding people but this was a 
distinct, you know, Jamaicans have a distinct accent mm-hmm. that you can distinguish. And I remember listening to them and I saw these two men and I said, are you Jamaican? And the guy said, yes. And he said, now he lives in Costa Rica. And I said, why? You know, Costa Rica is brilliant and there's nothing wrong with it. But I just was like, why, why are you in Costa Rica? And he said, because people like us aren't safe in Jamaica. And I looked at him, I looked at the man next to him and I realized that he was gay. And I realized that he was right. The truth is, is that gay people don't feel safe physically in Jamaica. And, you know, I didn't tell him that I was born in Jamaica. That was the first time I was actually a little embarrassed. And I thought nobody should be persecuted for who they are physically. Fine, I get the church and the church's view, but nobody should have their life threatened because of their sexuality. And that was so profound for me. The difference between what a crime is and what a sin is. Mm. And of course, you know, in many of the Caribbean islands, the law and the culture, whether people want to accept it or not, are shaped by religion. I don't think it's shaped by religion. I think it's shaped by our belief structure. And here's why I say that. Homosexuality is a sin, but so is adultery. But we treat homosexuals as if they're pariahs. But adulterers, especially adulterous men, Free pass. You know, men will be men. Free pass. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. In, it is so interesting. So yeah, continuing on. Um, t- you know, let's go back to where we started uh, before we kind of went off the the beaten path a little bit. Tell us about you know your views on sexuality and religion or Christianity, so, I should say. I think because the Church of Jesus Christ is encouraging people to not have sex outside of marriage, right? Because marriage is a union that is blessed by God. So sex within marriage is incredible. I mean, I remember, so the day I got married, our wedding finished at three o'clock. I remember distinctly that at quarter to three, my then husband got up and he said, thank you all for coming. And, you know, we walked around and we shook everyone's hands and he, he told people, hey, there's an after party. We probably won't be there, but y'all have fun. And we had sex seven times that night. I remember it distinctly. It was great. Like, literally, we just, between three, and, and we, we did make it to the after party, but we made it there at about 11.30. Um, you know, but the truth is, sex within marriage is so incredible, and I get why the church is telling people to wait. However, the problem is, is that we tell our singles in the church that sex is evil, sex is bad. So when they eventually get married, they then have problems performing because they've heard this thing is so bad and so evil. I've actually heard that before. I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, have, I have coached so many women who go, how am I supposed to switch off? Because I've heard this is wrong for so long. And, and, and also, and also you, you get the, the situations where because it was, uh, because sex is perceived as evil, etc., a lot of young people, when they do get married, they, they simply have no clue where to start. They don't know. They do, and nobody tells them. And the problem is, within Christianity, you can't watch porn. So you don't know. So I, and I, I wrote this in one of my blogs. Um, this woman told me, she was like, sex is painful. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry. We're going to have to step through this because it shouldn't be. Like, I've seen you with your husband. You really like him. 
So, and so why is this painful? And it turned out she was wiping away her wetness. She didn't know that she's supposed to get wet. So whenever he turned around, she'd use the heat and wipe. So obviously when he penetrated, it was painful. Right. And so did she think that that was something sinful, I guess? I mean... Yes, it was, she, she thought it was nasty. She didn't know. So she thought, oh my God, that's nasty. Let me wipe it away. I don't want him to see that. And and that there, <laughs> we go back yeah. there to, to now a lack of communication between the husband and the wife because they both were t- probably taught that you know this thing is this thing is evil and you should stay away from it. So there was no communication in terms of what will happen, what should happen, and in, in, exactly. But he he wasn't a virgin. She was. But the thing is, she would do it really discreetly. So she actually told me she'd have the, the sheet just behind her, you know, and then she'd just do it really quickly. And he didn't realize because it's dark, you know. Because who would, who would think that you'd wipe it away? Well, I hope she got that sorted. Oh, no, so we, we, we worked together on that. Um, I'm happy to say that she's very happily married now and enjoying <laughs> lots of good sex. Amen. Thank, thanks to Life Coach Joy. That's what I'm saying. You know, coaching is its something that I think we all need. We all need people we can bounce stuff off and kind of get a different perspective. So, yeah, that's that's one of my greatest joys, coaching people. But, yeah, so I am a firm believer that as a church, we need to tell people that sex is amazing. Sex feels good. Amen. We It, it, it does. I remember once, like, I had an orgasm that was so good, I literally was like, I bet heaven is like this. It's great, right? And so we need to tell people that sex is good and it feels good. However, we're encouraging you not to do it outside of the context of marriage. But hey, when you get married, you need to plow the field and scatter. Sex is not for just procreation, it's also for recreation. And I think we need to, as a church, display that message. And have really healthy conversations about what's going to happen when you get married. You know, so I actually started blogging. I did a couple of blogs, Advice for Virgins, when they get married. Because I had a lot of friends who didn't know, you know, not to wipe it away. They didn't know that maybe they should use lube. They didn't know that, you know, you can have, there are other positions outside of the missionary position. And this has been a discussion that I've heard and have been part of these discussions. What is your opinion on, uh, for example, oral sex? What is I don't what is I don't the question? Well, what is the the the, uh, the Bible stance or Christianity's stance on it within within the context of marriage? Of course, the Bible says that the marriage bed should be undefiled. So whatever you choose to do with your partner is your business. And that, so, exactly. and, and so, of her and arguments the same were thing with, same thing with anal sex. If you if two married people want to have anal sex, have fun. So there's a difference between what is right in in the eyes of Christianity. Anal sex is not a problem. In the eyes of healthcare professionals, <laughs> they have issues. Well, because no, no. The, the discussions we've been a part of. I've been a part of. I remember one one gentleman saying that if it wasn't, if it's not to, you know, if it's not performed for procreation, then it it shouldn't be done. Meaning, you know, oral sex should be thrown out of the window, even within marriage. I know some people are like that. Um, I would say that I don't believe that's... For me, sex is an act of worship. It's an ability to communicate with God at a higher level. Trust me, after your orgasm, your prayer life is amazing, right? Because you're connected. It's great. Why, why, why would you not have oral sex? Now, some people, and it's cultural, 
I know, for example, some Jamaican men will not let their wives go down on them. Their girlfriends. Well, they, yes, they, 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 yes. they, their entire album's created about not going to Nabao. Yes. No girl can sit on me head. Heads high. <laughs> you know, all, all of those things, right? And I do think that some of that's cultural. So, yeah, the, the great debate rages on. You know, well, but I think it's a really, it's really important to understand context. So, not all women are clitorally stimulated, right? So, if a woman is penetratively stimulated, oral sex isn't gonna do it for her. So, she doesn't care. And I know that a lot of Jamaican women, whether it's true or not, we are taught that you want a man to give it to you hard. So when a man does it soft and lovey-dovey, you're like, what's going on? That's what we heard. Like, yeah, man, you, you make, you, make you scream, you know, that kind of stuff. That's what we're told. A good man does your real good, like it should be work. Well, it, it's, it's called that. And, and it's interesting the names that, uh, especially in the Caribbean, that people have for the act. You know, I remember when we were in high school, um, uh, fellows would ask you, yo, you scraper? Yeah. Did you so did you, you you there was like smash in the states here they say mm-hmm. smash, they scrape, bang. You know what I mean? So it's it's mm-hmm. it's this harsh thing. And and which understandably, if you're a, a female um Christian virgin and you hear terms like that, it would make you scared. <laughs> then you know a, a good a good penis can change your life so it is a life-changing experience you should be afraid you should respect the penis right like just like men should respect the vagina like literally a good one makes you feel like you're coming home for good right this is a separate podcast <laughs> <laughs> now joy what are some of the uh in terms of expectations there's you know i i love uh looking at these interviews these street interviews on youtube like all these guys go around asking you know ladies these questions and you know vice versa what should single women and men concentrate on to attract the right person for them (laughs) be honest i think there's way too many of us who are trying to project a certain image and the problem with projecting an image is it's not real and therefore it's going to fail because they're not dating the, the real you and you're awesome, just as you are. Okay, I'm not d- d- dating the representative. Exactly, and that's that's not good. That's kind of like dating the governor general when you really want to be smashing the queen. I mean, okay, the queen is old, so maybe that's not a good analogy. But you know, you don't want an avatar instead of the real person, and that's what a lot of us are doing. We're dating avatars. Mm, mm, mm. Going forward, what should? Uh persons do to or concentrate on to make their relationships work like so you you, you've chosen your person you think it's the right person whether you're in a long-term relationship or you're married uh how do you keep it together i think you you know that it's work you know um they call it a blow job because it's work right even even oral sex is work it's a pleasurable and enjoyable experience but it's work it's a job you say it's a job you got to turn up, be dedicated to like, literally today, I'm going to suck it. I'm going to suck the ball. Ladies, suck the balls, okay? It's not just the penis, please. 
Suck those balls. If you're going to do it, do it properly. Be dedicated to it. And the same diligence you put into your giving a blowjob is the same diligence you need to put into doing the work in all aspects of your relationship. All aspects. And remember something. Don't be selfish as a person. One thing I know that as a woman who is career-focused, and I have been single for a long time. So when I'm in a relationship, I have to remember that it's not all about me. Yes, I'm amazing. Yes, I'm worthy. Yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, hallelujah. Royalty walks through my veins. I'm a queen. But hang on now. If you're a queen that wants a king, sometimes you got to go, I don't need to fight about this today. I don't need to choose a path of violence. You know, um, in Matthew, it says the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violence take it by force. The, the, but it's not every... Pardon? No, go ahead, go ahead. I was saying that, you know, so we have to choose how violent we're going to be in our attitudes, in relationships. So it's not every day we need to fight. Some days you just let things slide because it's not that important. Choose your battles. And know your absolutes, right? So what is it that you want in a man? What is it that you want in a woman? One of the things that annoys me a lot is the concept of the high-value man. So I've heard a lot about this, and apparently a high-value man needs to make above six figures in the U.S. But when you look at a high-value woman, the definition has nothing to do with her finances. Mm. She makes or how much she saves, or even her network. It, it has to do with things which are great, like how, how comfortable she makes you, how much peace does she bring you, which is great, but a high-value person in this case is somebody that's rare. So apparently women don't really bring men a lot of peace, sadly. So the question is, if you know that this is a person you want to be with, ask yourself what you're willing to compromise on and tell them your absolutes. Interesting. Be, be clear, be honest, be open. And within the context of, you know, <laughs> of Christianity, because that sort of is the, you know, the base for your lecturing, um, demystify this, demystify for us the relationship between sexuality and Christianity um, and or spirituality, because we're here talking about fellatio, et cetera, et cetera. I know people are going to listen to this podcast and cringe. What is Joy talking about? But, you know, from what you are saying, there is a solid relationship between Christian, being a Christian person in a marriage and your sexuality. Absolutely. Marriages, from I believe that the best marriages are where you feel fulfilled in all areas of your life, and that includes your sexuality, if you are a sexual person. Some people are not sexual and they do not care. But I think everything should be fulfilled in your marriage, right? Um, your intellect should be stimulated. Financially, you should be better. You should be better for being married. And sexually, it's nice when somebody hits it right. You know, it's... It's a great thing. So I, I just don't see a problem with enjoying sex in marriage. And I think that's the issue with Christianity. They, we have tried really hard to tell people not to have sex outside of marriage. And then they have this mindset. So what I say to people is, okay, um, sometimes when I minister, I use this verse, Esther 5, verse 2. This is the concept so... 
Esther is a Jewish woman married to a king. One of his henchmen or his official civil servants wants to destroy all the Jews. And so she enters to plead for the Jews. But in those times, if she enters without being called, she actually could be beheaded, right? Or she could be killed. And so she enters the room and she looks so cute. The king says, yo, he turns the scepter to let her into the room. And so he points out the scepter and she touches the tip of the scepter. And I tell women this, Esther 5 verse 2, sometimes ladies, you got to touch the tip. Yeah? It's, 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 it's a real scripture. I was like, where and is she I, going with this? But that's the thing about it. We have to, um, we have to really see what the Bible is telling us. Sometimes when somebody reaches out, and a lot of times, um, we, in Jamaica we call it shop lock. Sometimes as women we deny men sex deliberately. Um, you know, but we have to stop things like that. Like sex is not a powerful weapon to be used to control a man or to control a woman. Because I've actually seen it the other way around. I know men who refuse to give women sex. Sex is not a tool to be used to control people. Sex is something that should be enjoyed and should be pleasurable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah? mm -hmm. So I, I, do, I don't know how to demystify it because for me, I'm like, look, enjoy your partner, have fun in bed, make babies if you want, and if you don't want to make babies, still have fun in bed and understand each other's needs and wants and desires because some people have higher sex drives than others. I have a friend who says, he said to his wife, he said, look, you know the way you like to eat food three times a day? He said, that's the way I like to have sex. So for me, when you deny me sex, it's like denying food. And she said, so now she tries, she makes a really conscious effort to sleep with her husband every day. Because she was like, look, I can't do it three times a day. Like literally I do nothing else. But when he said it in that way, I finally understood why he's so frustrated all the time. So I think it's really important that you listen, you have really clear lines of communication, and you understand that, you know, people are different. So if your sex drive is not as high as your partner's, you need to figure out a mechanism of dealing with that. Words of wisdom from Life Coach Joy. Now, Joy, I have seen you in action not only uh, lecturing and giving advice on all things uh, sex, but also on things that, you know, uh, I've seen you help people out where um, they've been struggling in other things. For example, um, thanks to uh, the app Clubhouse, <laughs> we happened to be in a room one night together and there was a young lady who was struggling with finding her purpose. And you so eloquently asked her a few questions and gave her a short lecture and it was like, boop, the doors had opened in the chambers of her mind for the first time in 40 years. Now, mm -hmm. how do how do you, how do you, uh, what advice do you have for people who can't seem to quite find their purpose? They're working a job and they've had maybe three or four jobs in their life. They, they, they just don't know which, where to go. You know, is, is, is finding the, your purpose, does it have a lot to do with fear? Maybe uh, you're fearful of taking that step because... What will the people say or what will my what will it do to my bank account? You know, for someone trying to find their purpose, enlighten us. How, how, how does one go about finding their purpose? I had.
had the most profound con- so I have a godson and I'm sh- I'm ashamed to tell you I don't know his exact age I think he's about six and I was with him on Sunday and we were talking about careers he's he's highly intelligent and um so we're talking about the career my career path and he was asking me some questions why do what I do I seem to love my job and I was like dude you're six why do you care and then he said to me he said it sounds like you need to know what you want then do what you want and I was looking at him like wow huh <laughs> you're six <laughs> as African as African Americans say he'd been here before way of saying something that I tell people when I'm coaching but I've never said it like that but that's the key to finding your purpose know what makes you happy and then go do it but it's also understanding the practicalities right so for example if as I said if I was married I would really like to just have sex all day okay that would that would be my ideal if I could get paid to have sex with my husband all day that's what I would do Okay. Practically, though, that's not going to really support my lifestyle unless I find a really rich husband. So then I have a choice. I have a choice to find a really rich husband who can give me sex all the time and I therefore don't have to work. Or I can decide that, hey, sex is something that I love, but it's not going to be my life purpose. And therefore, I'm going to find other things that fulfill me. So it's understanding what you want and understanding the opportunity cost. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think for me, something that I always use, I love this technique. It's called the time machine technique. And a lot of coaching um, academies and courses will, will use it. The concept is you sit in a time machine and you go for it five years or 10 years. And you run into yourself and you're happy. I mean, you're ridiculously happy. You look amazing. You're living your best life. And you say to yourself, hey, man, you look amazing. What have you done for the last 10 years that has gotten to this point? And whatever you answer is what you should do. So you probably say stuff like, hey, you know what? I let go of people that were just chatting nonsense in my ears and that were bringing me negativity. I let go of that. I realized that I didn't really love my job, so I was willing to take a job that pays less in order to do something that really fulfilled me. And I knew that financially I could take the hit. So instead of going on three holidays a year, now I only go on holiday two times a year. But do you know what? The rest of the time that I'm not on holiday, I'm not super stressed out because I'm doing something that I love and I'm in a better environment. So if you fast forward 10 years... What is it that you're doing that's making you truly happy? That, then go do that. That was that was profound. That was profound. I love that. Mm-hmm. What um what lessons would you say that you've learned in life? Give us give us a couple mm-hmm. uh, drop a couple gems. Give us a couple nuggets. I have learned that it's so important to love yourself. Um and I don't mean that in the hashtag self-love manner. I mean that in truly knowing who you are and loving yourself, including your flaws. So I, I'm a busty woman. And when I grew up in Anguilla, all of a sudden, I was so 
when I was 10 years old, I was about 50 pounds. And then all of a sudden, I got boobs. And people actually teased me about it. They said, they said, oh, she bit herself with a fish. Or she put hot potato on her boobs, so they're swollen. So she burns herself every night to get swollen boobs, right? I mean, these are the things that people told me. And I was 12. These are the things that people told me about myself. And I think it, it was really difficult when people tell you negative things about yourself. But you must understand what people say. Take the good, the things that will help you. Take them and everything else will learn to let it go. So what I started doing about two years ago, I have a little book of complaints. I only allow myself to complain for 15 minutes every day. Mm. One five. After that, I have a book where I write the other complaints. I'm not allowed to vocalize them. I don't want to hear my voice vocalizing the complaints. So I write it down. Then every Saturday, after I state what I'm grateful for, then I'll open the book of complaints to see what other things I wanted to complain about. Here's what happened. The first week, I had some things I wanted to complain about. But then after I said what I was grateful for, it felt kind of awkward to complain, right? Indeed. But I complained anyway because I'm, I'm obstinate. I was like, nope, these, were, these, 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 these irritated me. I'm definitely going to complain about them. So I, you know, I called my mom and I complained. And she listened. Lovely mother. Then the next week, you know, same thing. I, I wrote down less things to complain about. I called my mom and I found I complained less. Three, four months later, I genuinely stopped writing in the book. There was nothing to complain about. Things that were bugging me that I could fix, I actually went ahead and fixed them because I didn't want to complain about them. I learned what was fixable versus what I should just let go. And I think that for me is something that's a life lesson. The, seren the serenity it, prayer, huh? Exactly. If I can, if I can impact that, let me impact that. But if I cannot, and sometimes I think with the serenity prayer, it's it's not just accepting the things I cannot change. It's also removing myself from certain situations. Mm -hmm. Because some things. So when I was married, um, I got to that stage where I realized that we literally were bad for each other. And I had to remove myself from that situation. It's not that he's a bad person. He was a bad person. Well, that's a bad person. But literally, our interactions were just caustic. And we were not being healthy. So some days you have to go, you know what? Nah, I'm good. Peace, you know? I posted something similar on Facebook the other day. It was, it was a meme. And it said that... Um, you know, removing yourself uh, from situations where there are toxic people is it's good uh, for your mental health. It's you know, I'm paraphrasing here. Absolutely, and but it's it's recognizing when it's necessary. And I think as Caribbean people, we have to realize that family sometimes can be negative for our mental health. Talk about it. Because <laughs> we have large families. I have on my my grandfather on my mother's side had 18 children, four died. So she, he had 14 children that roamed the earth. Wow. I have 30 or 29. First cousins. 30, first cousins on my mother's side alone. And 18 on my father's side. 
That's wow. a whole lot of people and personalities and, and viewpoints. And oh, by the way, people who think you're in foreigners should give you money. Did you invite everyone to the wedding? <laughs> Oh, no, 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 no. I did not. Um, in fact, nobody from my mother's side came to my wedding. Um, I just didn't, I'm just not about to invite people. If I get married, and if I get married again, I'm not having a big wedding. I want a house, dude. And like, why should why should I pay to feed y'all? Nah. And thus I want the, house for a house. And thus the bacchanal starts. Yes. <laughs> Joy, because you... we like the bacchanal, you know that, right? Say again? We like bacchanal. Apparently, you know. <laughs> Joy, give us some lessons or, or gems in business. We asked you about life. Now give us some in terms of business. Um, ooh, I don't, it's interesting. So before we get into that, I'll share with you something. I always thought I was bad at business. So my dad has set up a few businesses in his lifetime. I think you remember Chicking. Chicking. Um, yes. <laughs> it was called Chicking and something. And pizza? Yeah, I think I think it might have been Chicken and Pizza, but I remember Chicking was the brand. Yeah, I remember it was it was, it was and that was uh your mom and dad's con uh, they conceptualized that brand, yes? No, no, no. It was it, it was a franchise. Oh, had. it was a franchise, okay. Okay. A franchise. So it's just Martin. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Um, but my parents set up a business and it did well for a time. But, you know, I saw my parents set up a lot of businesses that failed. Mm. And I thought that I do not have business in my genes. I'm not an entrepreneur. So that's what I thought. I thought I better go and find a job that will make me money because I do not have an entrepreneurial spirit. But here's the thing about it. Just because your parents are not good at something doesn't mean that you're not good at something. Just because your family isn't excellent in certain areas doesn't mean you cannot be excellent. And I think for me, that's something I've learned. So I actually own a business and we export shea butter from Ghana to different places in the world. Wonderful. Exactly. And shea butter is just this amazing product. Um, when you use it on your skin, it's just, and we just export raw shea butter. We don't do anything with it. We don't add any oils. We just go, this is a block of pure, beautiful shea butter made in Ghana by beautiful women in the north of Ghana who just do what they, and they love it. You see the smiles on their faces as they whip this thing that is so lovely on your skin. Like when you put shea butter on your skin, you're like, oh my gosh, my skin feels like butter, you know? And I think it's really important in business to understand that you have the power to be creative and your creativity can make you money. Of course. But so many people don't know that. I didn't know that. It took me a long time to figure that out. Joy, what would you say to your 16-year-old self? Ooh, so let me see. At 16, I was in the UK. I was one of two black people in a predominantly white class. Um, I literally was teased because I had big boobs and they were like, you look like a Barbie doll. Your waist is too thin for your boobs. And I had really big self-esteem issues at 16. And I would say to my 16-year-old self that you're going to love your boobs as you get older. <laughs> Don't worry about it. At 16, I remember this, I wanted breast reduction surgery. Mm. 
I did because I I was I had a twenty four inch waist and I was an E cup. So your dad's a plastic surgeon, isn't he? No, he's an orthopedic surgeon. An orthopedic surgeon. I'm sorry, <laughs> but as a medical but professional, I, what did he? He is no. But, active, did was he was he in favor or no? No, no, no. So my dad has really strict rules. If you come to my dad, if I come to my dad about something medical, he'll say, "What did your doctor say?" He's not, that's, that's how he's always been very clear about the boundaries um my dad is he's a very clear person he he lives his life in black and white he's not a murky kind of that's not his deal so i would tell my 16 year old self that you are fine just the way you are and whatever self-esteem issues that you think you have it's okay so you know the skin that you know i had i had spots the skin that you dislike now, as you get older, your spots may or may not change, but your personality is what matters. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I, I would say that your your sexuality is okay. I was always, I, I always knew I was more sexual than a lot of people around me, and I was afraid of it because I was like, why, why, why do you think about sex? Why, why do you know? Like I. At sixteen, obviously, I wasn't um, sexually active at all. But I knew it. I knew I liked sex. Like, I just knew, like, I'd see a good guy and I'd be like a fine guy, and and my kitty cat would get wet. And I was like, "Why are you like this?" Were, were, women... Do you think that you were more more in tuned to sex, or is it that the others were too afraid to say? I don't. I'm not. I don't know the answer to that question. I think I've always been very sexually aware. Um. Just just growing up, I, I just knew I knew I was a sexual person. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to exercise it, but I, I, I was I've always been aware that you know sexuality is good, and I I like as a woman I've always liked masculine energy, so I get a different energy from men than I do from women, and I've always known that. Hmm. Interesting. Oh yeah, it's it's really important to know what what drives you. So I was in I was in Accra this December in Ghana, and you know so I have my place and literally my male friends would just turn up, but my female friends would always call. I was like, that's weird. My male friends were like, yeah, yeah, we just know we're welcome. But my female friends were like, yeah, but we don't know if we're we're welcome. And I was like, that's interesting, because I don't think I give you a different energy, but I obviously do because the masculine energy exerts a different influence than the feminine energy. Some may argue, but you know. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's fact, and it also happens. It also happens in the workplace. What energy are you bringing? Oh, so philosophical, this joy. Oh. Big facts, dude. I don't think it's philosophical. Do you consider yourself a high achiever? And if so, how important is it for all of us as individuals to aim high? I. I consider myself a self-achiever. I'm all about doing what is right for me. And I tell people it is selfless to be selfish. Say that one more time. It is selfless to be selfish. And this is something I think a lot of people learn as they grow older. Absolutely. But I, I cracked onto it, I think, in, the mid, in my mid-30s. I just realized that I cannot give... Be all things to all people. I cannot. It's not possible. And not only that, it's not authentic. 
to be the best person I can be as a wife, you know, when I get married again, because I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if we've talked about this already, so I'm a divorcee. But when I become a wife again, as a daughter, as a sister, as an employee, for me to be the best I can be, I need to be the best me. And that requires my happiness. So I fight for my happiness and I fight for my peace. Wonderful. Tell me what your biggest fear has been in life and have you overcome it? Um, my biggest fear was being single for the rest of my life. Mm. Yeah, so quick story. I, in university, I met this wonderful guy and, you know, he's a great person. We dated, got married. We divorced one month shy of five years of marriage. And I said to God, I said, so we separated one month shy of um, five years. I said to God, look, even if I never have sex again, which is a big deal for me, remember, I'm very sexual. You mentioned. Said, even <laughs> if I never have sex again, I cannot stay in this relationship. It is, it's not good for me. I, I was going through self-esteem issues. I was not the best version of myself. Um, it, was, it was not good. In fact, when I separated... I didn't tell my boss for about a month. And after a month, I went into his office and I said, hey, you've probably noticed a difference in my work for about a month. And he said, yes, you've become amazing. He said, Joy, you've always been good. But your work is incredible. We've all noticed it. They're like, you're on point. And I was like, huh? No, I'm, I'm separated. Like, my work, my, work is, my work is worse. And... You know, but I'm looking at him and he's like, no, it's, it's actually really good. And I tell him I'm separated from my husband. And he said, oh, but he had been divorced before. And he said, here's the thing. Because now you've let that go, you're not putting energy into that. So your work will improve because your energy is going into the right things now. And I thought, huh. And I spoke to a couple of my colleagues and they were like, yeah, in the last month, you've been on fire. Like you've been, you've been hot on it, right? Because energy is neither created nor destroyed. I believe that is F is equal to MA. That's Newton's second law. No, it's Newton's third law, right? Mm -hmm. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, reaction, right? So if you think about it like that, there's only a certain amount of energy that you have. And if you spend it on things that are negative, it's not going to yield results. But if you make a conscious effort to be positive... That's better. I actually think it's Newton's second law. Oh, my goodness. It's late at night. It's either Newton's second or Newton's third, guys. As you're listening to this podcast, please don't judge my engineering ability based on this. We won't. The truth is, though, Chris, when I would judge people, I'd be like, oh, they called it Newton's third when it was Newton's second. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> what's What's the next big thing for Joy Buchanan? Um. I am very interested in two spaces. One is about how we can empower people, especially women. As you know, it's actually how we can empower women so we can empower men. Here's what I, I think is impacting me right now. We have spent a lot of time as a society impacting women, empowering women, telling women they're great, they're awesome, you are not inferior, feminine power, yeah. But here's what's happened. By empowering our women, a lot of our men are not stepping up because women are in, 
African Caribbean society in Britain, for example, we are the only ethnic group that makes more than our men. Okay, so well, black- is 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 that not so for African Americans as well? I don't know. I think so. I think African American women are making more than African American men. That might be in terms of education. Sure. I think African American women are the not only the fastest, but um, in terms of percentage, they earn and they've earned the most degrees. Probably, but that's but and people go, yeah, that's a great thing, but I'm not convinced it's a great thing. I think that we need to upskill our men. I think our men need to feel valued in our community, and they need to be treated like kings again. So it's something I'm very passionate about, helping men to understand that they are king, that they are literally royalty. So I was speaking to a guy in 2019, and he was he was making bad decisions. He's a lawyer. He's very successful, but in his relationship space, he was making bad decisions. And I was like, look, dude, do you understand that you are king? Do you understand that you are special, that you're impactful? Why are you making these bad decisions? Because do you know that there are women out there who would just love you as you are? Like, you are a black man in America surviving this environment that is difficult for you. Why are you making these bad decisions? Do you know what happened when I told him that? What happened? (laughs) Cried. This man cried. This man is a successful lawyer in his 40s, and he cried. And I was like, why is he crying? You know that moment you're like, it's a video call, and you're like, it's just the two of us. And I was like, okay, Joy, I I didn't think it was such a profound statement. I thought it was obvious. Like, where do we go now? Where do we go now? And, you know, I let him cry and I said, what's going on with it? He said, no one has ever told me that, that I'm a king. I was like, but you are a king. He said, dude, look at you. In a society that says that you're not going to achieve because you're black, that you're not educated, because, that you're not intelligent or worthy just because of your race, in a society, and he had been stopped by the cops a month before, because he was driving a nice car. In this society, you have still managed to be one of the top people in your professions. Mm, mm, mm. Why wouldn't you know that you're royalty? So why so, wouldn't you accept it? So, do you subscribe to the sort of Fantasia um, philosophy that the man is the head, but she's the neck? Oh, I don't know. I think it's. So I'm a part of, I go to a church called New Jerusalem Church, and it's a part of Jabula International Ministries. And so the aspartolic head is a guy called Tudor Bismarck. But I thought you didn't believe in organized religion. But I think order is necessary and accountability is necessary. So one of the things I like about my church is that we are accountable. So we don't just give tithes and the bishop spends the money anyhow. Anyhow, Mm. there's an annual general meeting. We know what the money is being spent on. We know how much money is going to our food banks, how much money is going to him, because it's important. So I don't like organized religion, but I understand that it's necessary for compliance and governance. Understood. Yeah. I um, And one of the most endearing stories for me about my church is one day I called my bishop and I said, Bishop, I want to see how you're spending the money. Do you have open books? And he said, of course. He said, when do you want to come in? 
So I went into the church one day and the finance director sat, sat with me and he said, this goes to here, this goes to here. And he, he said, you know, um, I said, oh, that's a lot of money to be going to the food bank. And he said, well, some people, when they put on their ties, they want the money to go to the food bank. So we give it to the food bank because that's what they requested. Right, and, right. And I love that about my church. I love that about Jabula churches generally. Um, there's a certain level of accountability, which I think is great. Awesome. Joy, when you are 105 years old and you're sitting on your rocking chair overlooking the water, whether on the coast of somewhere in the UK, in Ireland, or or in Anguilla, or in Jamaica, wherever you choose with your husband, mm-hmm. and you're on your rocking chair looking over the water, what would you say was your ultimate dream? What was that thing that you wanted to accomplish and you said, yes, I did it? What's your ultimate dream? My ultimate dream is that... Black people are empowered to realize that racism is real, but it's not always the reason. Racism is real, but it's not always the reason. Yes. Break that down. I think it is a really big problem, but it's not always the reason why we're not succeeding. And we sometimes use it as a crutch. But sometimes, here's the thing, sometimes we have bad attitudes. Oh, they didn't like me because I was black. No, they didn't like you because you're a bitch. Mm. It's different. It's not because you're a black woman. It's no. It's actually literally because you're a, you're a difficult person to work with. And this it's it's a complex issue. So, for example, I am dramatic. So, I use my hands a lot. There's a there's a theory that if you cut off a black woman's hands, she can't speak. Who came up with that theory? I've, I've heard it many times. Like, we're very much, like, as I speak, I'm talking to you now, it's an audio, but my hands are moving everywhere. Sometimes I've gotten up, I've sat down, like, you know, I'm like, mm, Christmas. Mm. <laughs> that is how we are culturally, right? And it's, it's understanding that, look, sometimes when we don't get the job, it's not because we're black. It's because people are finding us difficult. And it's understanding how we can be our authentic selves, which is necessary, but also add value and help people to see that we add value. And I think that's very, very important to me, helping people to be authentic and be perceived in a way that adds value. And that's really, really what I want. I want to see for myself. I am relatively successful for my age I'm in a position where I am where I'm two steps below director in my 40s in sorry in my late 30s um you know and that for me is really important helping people to understand that racism is real but let us not use it as a crutch and an unnecessary crutch because you can achieve and it's how can we help people defy stereotypes? So with many stereotypes, isn't the onus on the other side to educate themselves and understand? And less of us trying to, trying to prove? Here's the problem, though. A lot of us don't know we have stereotypes. So I'll peel it back to privilege, right? 
I get that there's white privilege and there's male privilege, but here's the thing. I also have a sense of privilege that I didn't necessarily realize until maybe the last five, 10 years. I went to one of the best universities in the world. So I have the privilege of education. Mm -hmm. I have been employed ever since graduation. So I have the privilege of employment. I've never been on the social welfare system. Mm -hmm. I have the privilege of being quote unquote middle class. That is privilege. Right? So I don't know if the onus is on us or them, but it's about understanding privilege. And people in privilege need to recognize their privilege and then use their privilege to help others. Understood. 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 Good point. Good point. It, but it's, it's, a, it's an important narrative. I think too many times we focus on white male privilege instead of saying, hey, yeah, that's real and that's dominant, but hey, I come from, or I come from a two-income household, a nuclear family. I come from an extended family with grandmothers who were powerhouses. And so such and privilege should, should seek to help. Exactly. I get your philosophy. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's something that I, I don't feel, especially as a black community, we're, we're understanding that privilege. Or even in and not Christian not not everyone in the black community has that though you understand so so I guess you're saying those with it should seek to seek to yeah and I do think just listening to my my white friends versus my black friends my black friends seem to have more of it to be honest mm. Mm. that privilege of community there's a community so there's this athlete you know who had smoked weed Shakari Richardson. Exactly. There's, there's a lot of controversy, but one of the memes that I loved is the weed men of our generation, yours and mine, would never have sold her weed because they'd be like, shawty, right. you're about to be an Olympian. Right, 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 but right. that was the thing. I grew up, when I was growing up, um, I lived in Hansworth Wood, which is past Hansworth, which is a not so nice area in Birmingham sometimes. And I remember the quote-unquote gangsters. I don't know if they were gangsters. I just know when I was walking home, they'd be like, somebody, I'd be at the bus stop, I'd come out, and somebody would walk me home. I was like, okay, cool. And they'd nod their heads, and it was like a protection something, right? Because they're like, she's a good girl. There was a, there was a rap, I can't remember which rapper it was. It said they, was it Tupac? They said they tried to sell weed. And so they went to the, the, you know, the neighborhood hustle boy and he was out on the, on the corner and he realized that he wasn't able to sell any. And the man was like, man, give me that. This ain't for you. <laughs> you know, so it's, 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 it's quite interesting. It's quite interesting. Now, Joy oh. talks about the time he drank beer and he drank beer one time and he tried to swear. And so people who don't know my dad is a doctor and like a quote unquote good boy like he's really really good so the first time he drank beer in anguilla he drank beer and he swore and somebody said to him i think it was matt brooks matt brooks said to him doc that is not for you he took away the beer and said stop swearing that that is not for you and it was just society recognizing that he's no he's trying to be something he's not he needs to calm his ass down <laughs> 
But said society, it, it works both ways because said society can try to box you into something that you're not either, right? Mm-hmm. So, which is, which is very interesting. So, for the viewers, Crispin and I are from a beautiful island called Anguilla. It is 18 miles long and three miles wide. 16. 35. Pardon? I think it's 16 long. <laughs> well, no, when you include Anguilita. Oh, okay, if, if you're going that direction and scrub. Yes, I remember this from school, my friend. It's 18. <laughs> <laughs> but it's ironic that this is a society that tells you who you should be. And kind of gets upset when you're not who they think that they have molded you to be because they are very invested in you. And it's understanding... Are they, are they though? Are they? No, I think that for me, I think Angolans are very invested in me. Like, I, I came back... Oh, this is a funny story. I think it was 2005. I took a boat from St. Martin to Anguilla. I get to Anguilla and I say to the immigration officer, I said... So my name is Joy, and um, my Uncle Sinclair is supposed to pick me up, but he doesn't know I'm here yet. Can you point me to a payphone so that I can call him? And he said, oh, no, I've already called him. I said, oh, well, that was nice. I said, oh, he, he said, yes, he's on his way. And I said, oh, my, because it had been a rough journey. So I said, I really had hoped to get to get to a pub, you know, to get some alcohol because it's it's been that kind of day. And she said, "You don't drink." I said, "What?" <laughs> no, I'm not. That's I drink. <laughs> I I was over twenty. I was over twenty one. So I was just like, I was really, really surprised that this woman was telling me that I don't drink because I'm pretty certain that I know how to drink. Liquor, malika, you know, like, and I just, I just come from Jamaica, where I was drinking with old men, Jamie and nephew, sixty-three percent overproof white rum. I know I can drink. Ray and nephew. Yes, brother. That's family. Says Ray and nephew. Hallelujah. That's family. <laughs> no, but you know, and and, and that's a, a great example of how uh, you are boxed in. You are. You know, yeah. she's telling you you don't drink. Well, well who are you, lady? <laughs> and I'm over 20. And this lady's telling me about my alcohol preferences. So so it, it can be a gift and a curse. It can be. and But I think it's understanding the benefit and the joy of it, right? Yeah, I think, I think it, it, as you grow older, you understand and you understand how to navigate and I think this goes this goes for persons who grew up in small towns, in small islands, you know. Yes. I I was watching um a an island parish, obviously they uh, they were in Anguilla a few years ago. But I was watching the one, I think it was in the Shetland Islands, and it was just interesting how geographically it's on a different way, different, you know. Uh, part of the globe, but the culture. There's certain things about growing up in a small place that 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 are things that are indicative. No matter where on the globe that that, that small place happens to be. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to watch. Joy, how do we get in contact with you? What is your blog? What is your? If I wanted to uh, contact you via email, how do we contact you? Um. So it is. Instagram is the best way. It's at L-C-J-O-I-E. 
life coach that, joy exactly and it's joie is what i use which is french for joy joie so lc J-O-I-E at, I'm sorry, at L-C-J-O-I-E Instagram, yeah? Yeah, that's it. That's it. And you mentioned you, had, you mentioned you had a blog? I do have a blog and it's also um, at L-C-J-O-I-E at WordPress.com. At WordPress.com. Construction professional, life coach extraordinaire, lover of all things sexy, Joy Buchanan, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today on Planet Thirty. You, you gone? Are we done? I was. I, I had more, but okay, fine. I mean, is there anything more you wanted to say? No, there's there's more we can talk about though. There's the whole world, man. Ah, I quite understood. Quite understood. We'll have to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> definitely, definitely. It's been a lot of fun. Um, thank you so much, and. On a serious note, thank you for your voice. Your voice is important and it's impactful. Don't forget that. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O N P L. A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.